Welcome to episode three of MCV Cast from wherever you're joining us. We've got a great show lined up today. We'll be talking to someone who literally wrote the book on the future of energy in America, Governor Brian Schweitzer. But first, we want to flag that we're recording this week's show on the morning of Thursday, April 16th, and we just got word of another attempt by the Trump administration to muscle through another attack on our clean air and water by weakening standards for mercury and other toxic metals and pollution from coal and oil-fired power plants. As we've said here on MCV Cast before, lots of major setbacks to the conservation movement are happening under our noses during this era of quarantine and crisis, and now... This is a developing story, but we'll be keeping track of it. Uh, let's get into it today. We are joined, as always, by MCV's Deputy Director Whitney Tani, signing in from Bozeman, and Political Director Jake Brown in Helena. We were joking uh, a little bit earlier about how we're not going to start this week's show by talking about the weather, although it's still snowing. So, Whitney, what are you doing to keep sane in day 800 of staying at home? Well, to keep sane, the hubs and I have been cooking up a storm getting out on as many walks as our toddler and dog can tolerate, reading, catching up on Ozark, and believe it or not, I'm jump roping again. I am uh, just trying to stay connected as much as I can to um, friends and family. It's kind of the hardest part about the social distancing stuff for me. Last night, I did a trivia hour with some friends over Zoom. That was super fun. I actually took second place, which is definitely better than I would do with normal trivia. So I was kind of a big fan of that. Yeah, you nailed it last night. I was on the same game and uh, I I sucked at it. But anyway, uh, maybe I'll brush up on my trivia for part of my staying at home. Um, on to more headlines today. The construction of the Keystone XL pipeline is still very much in the news this week, especially here in Montana. And um, Jake, I know you are tracking it. Yeah. So um, the future of the Keystone XL pipeline is just continuing to rapidly change. Um, Recently, a U.S. District Judge Brian Morris uh, actually canceled a pretty critical water crossing permit, saying that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had failed to adequately consider some of the environmental impacts on endangered species in the area like pallet sturgeon. Um, This is looking like it's going to be a pretty big barrier for TC Energy if they actually ever want to complete this pipeline. But oddly enough, the company is still planning to begin construction on other parts of the pipeline. Um, Basically, the company plans to keep working on the parts of the pipeline that they do have the necessary permits for which is going to require that the company still bring in out-of-state workers who can put northeastern parts of Montana at risk during this uh, COVID-19 global pandemic. Uh, It's also important to note that Judge Brian Morris is actually going to hear two other cases regarding Keystone. Some American Indian tribes and other environmental groups are actually challenging President President Trump's approval of the pipeline. So um, this situation around Keystone is just going to continue to change. Now, like I said, despite so much uncertainty around the future of the pipeline, TC Energy has just made it clear that they have every intention to move forward with the construction uh, of the parts of the pipeline that they do have the permits for. Um, Not only does this just not make any sense with the recent court case, but it also poses a huge public health risk to northeastern Montana. Um, The company is going to be bringing in out-of-state workers who are still going to work every day, we're still interacting with local Montanans every day, basically doing everything that we're not supposed to do in a global pandemic. And Murph, that's actually why we started a petition to call on TC Energy 
elected officials in Montana and Alberta to delay construction until after the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and we would love it if our members and our listeners would take action with us, sign our petition, which you can actually find a link for in the show notes. Staying engaged and using our voices here in the state is kind of more important than ever because of the vacuum that's being created by the pandemic. Now, speaking of Montana voices, the University of Montana just released their 2020 Crown of the Continent and Greater Yellowstone Initiative Public Land Survey. It is a mouthful, but there are some really important key facts that came out of their survey One of those things is that 88% of Montanans have visited national public lands in the last year, and 89% have visited our state public lands. Another piece that's really important to highlight is that almost all of us believe public lands are important to our state's economy and helpful. Another fact that I really loved that came out of the survey is that there's 79% of us who consider ourselves conservationists. 75% of voters want to increase or maintain protections for seven wilderness areas here in the state. And it's worth pointing out that Senator Daines and Congressman Gianforte had legislation in 2017 that would have done the exact opposite of that. Um, No protections for wilderness study areas. In fact, the legislation would have taken away protections for hundreds of thousands of acres of wilderness study areas and put them at risk of a development um, and exploitation. Another kind of cool fact that came out of this was that 75% of voters support the Blackfoot Clearwater Stewardship Act, which is being led by Senator John Tester. This bill would expand protections for the area around the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is a place that's really special to all of us as Montanans. For more results, just check out the link that we've pasted below in the show notes that um, has the full UM survey as well as an analysis. And thanks so much. Thank you, Whitney. And another development that happened since we recorded our last MCV cast last week, um, the Montana Department of Environmental Quality has formally given the green light. They call it a positive record of decision to the controversial Black Butte copper mine 15 miles outside of White Sulphur Springs, Montana, near the headwaters of the beloved Smith River. The mining company is Tintina, Montana, which is a subsidiary of the Australian mining giant Sandfire Resources. And though this mine has been in the works for years, uh, this permitting process launches us into a new phase of reality, one that the conservation movement finds very concerning, of course. And that's where we'll start our conversation with today's guest. I first interviewed today's guest as a college radio reporter 20 years ago when he was campaigning for the U.S. Senate. I found him at a tailgate at a Grizz game with a giant balloon shaped like a light bulb tied to his belt, and I'm pleased to welcome one of Montana's most famous ideas people, of course, the two-term governor of Montana from 2004 to 2012. Uh, Governor Schweitzer is a farmer, a rancher, soil scientist, former chairman of the Stillwater Mining Company, innovator, inventor, battery expert. What else am I missing, Governor? Um, Arabic speaker, um, had uh, over 300 people working for him, uh, living in Saudi Arabia when he was 26 years old. Uh, And uh, every day was a crisis. Uh, I guess that would have prepared me for politics, except it was actually worse there than it was governor of Montana. (laughs) 
<laughs> He's also the author of a very insightful book called Power Up. Subtitle is How the Coming Revolution Will Empower You, Free Us from All Oil Wars, and Make You a Buck or Two. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Governor, let's um, start with news about Montana's DEQ allowing a permit for the Black Butte copper mine. Um, we're particularly interested in your thoughts as a former mining executive. Uh, the issue, of course, is all about perpetual treatment of water. I've looked at mining ventures all over the world. Uh, as a as a soil scientist um, and a person who's been involved in the mining industry, I've had an opportunity to be involved in a lot of mines, in, including Black Butte. Uh, but I walk away from any of them that possess the potential of producing acid water. Just, just a little chemistry so everybody understands what's going on here. Um, every mountain, every pile of rock, even subsurface, has some water in it, no matter where you're at, even in a desert. And uh, that pile of water is added to every time there's snow or some rain, it runs off into streams, as you know, but some of it runs right back in to the mountain. And it's a it's a storage area. And then that mountain seeps. Sometimes there's a spring when it's a little larger, but it, there's always seepage going on. When you have uh, metals, uh, copper, gold, silver, and others, um, oftentimes they are co-associated with sulfur. Those metals got close to the surface through a volcanic activity a billion or more years ago. And so that, as that volcanic activity pushed these metals as a molten material closer to the surface, they also brought a lot of sulfur. So as you're mining them, you oftentimes will come in, in uh, contact with that sulfur. Uh, the sulfur, when it's in the mountain, it doesn't create an acidification of the water. As that water seeps through that sulfur and that copper or that gold over the course of the last billion years and runs out as a spring and into your stream, uh, it, it's not acidic. It's pH six and a half to eight and everything's fine. But once you open a hole and you allow oxygen in, then there's a chemical reaction that uh, allows the water or makes the water acidify. Well, what do we care about acidification, right? You drink lemonade, it's acidic. Uh, you eat some foods that are acidic. Uh, acid's not bad. But what acidic water does is it allows heavy metals, arsenic and some others, mercury, uh, zinc, of course, copper, lead. It allows them to come in solution. So instead of just like being stuck in the mountain, it is able to move in the water. And that acid water will move that heavy metal to the next stream. Well, when it gets to the next stream, it'll create a little acid zone and then it just dumps the arsenic right there in the stream. Uh, that's what, uh, I'm not sure if the people who owned the mines uh, in Butte uh, 120 years ago, I, I'm not sure they understood the chemistry or whether they didn't care. But either way, uh, we know the consequences of that in Montana. We have glory holes uh, old mines all over Montana, that the people of Montana have been put in a position of cleaning up or just bucking it, uh, living with it. And uh, so I think we've learned a lot. And uh, those of us who have studied the chemistry, those of us who understand the geology and the soil science of this, um, we're kind of dedicated to not making the same mistakes. Now, the Black Butte is interesting because it's an underground mine. And they explained to us that what they will do is they will drill down to get to those copper deposits. They will mine underground. They will bring the ore to the surface. 
they will crush it. They will remove the copper. And then the material that's left that doesn't contain much copper will be mixed with cement and it'll be put right back down in the hole. So unlike what you see, for example, over at Anaconda, where you got a big pile of black dirt, you won't have that. But they say it's all going to go back in the hole. Well, yeah, sort of, you can do that, but you can only get about two thirds of it back in the hole. They also say that since they're going to put it back in the hole, that they're not going to allow the oxygen in that will allow that acidification to occur. And the mine is going to be open. You know, they, they project uh, some years, 10, maybe 15, maybe 20 years. And at that point, they're going to completely fill that mine in and not allow any air in or any water out. And we're all going to live happily ever after. Now, I say happily ever after because the consequences of a mine like this um, mean management in perpetuity. It's not going to be a matter of closing the door, walking away, doing high fives, cashing the copper check and walking away. No, there's going to be management there because water moves, uh, mines move, rocks move. Uh, the earth is a constant uh, juggernaut of movement. And as it moves, water finds new paths. And so the suggestion that um, when they walk away from the Black Butte and they plug that hole, there's no way, no how, no nothing that that water could ever mix with oxygen again. And it would ever acidify a stream that leads to the Smith River is, is a fallacy. Perpetuity, you know, I'm just a farmer, but perpetuity is a long frickin' time. And it's no one in the history of the world has been able to contain geologic water forever. So, yeah, it may well be that uh, they can tell us that uh, during your lifetime it won't occur. How would we? How could we possibly know that? Uh, I think I think that the DEQ was put in a very difficult position because the rules that they have to work with always talk about mitigation, always talk about when you leave that mine, you have to reclaim it. You have to reclaim it so that we know, never get another butte or another one of those 500 glory holes that we have all over Montana. And as DEQ looks through their rules, they go, wow, they, gosh, um, the rules don't really apply here. It looks like, you know, we're concerned because we know that to manage something forever is nearly impossible. But I guess, I guess we're going to have to give them the permit. And that's where the people of Montana are now put. If they do build this mine uh, and they do follow through to the letter, which seldom happens in the, the world of uh, management of the, of the earth. But if they do, it still doesn't put us out of the woods because there can be changes geologically that would allow a oxygen to uh, come in contact with that water and B, that water, even though they say it's 200 feet uh, down and, and certainly below the water level, uh, that changes as well. So um, I guess uh, Montana is going to have a situation of wait and see. And those of us who have floated the Smith River, those of us who, who not just like to catch a fish and turn them loose, but like to go to one of the quietest places in Montana um, and that Smith River that feeds into the Missouri River, I guess uh, we'll find out. And, and that's, uh, as a scientist, as a citizen of Montana, uh, that's the best way I can explain where we're at. And Governor, you think about the, the politics here as well, but the, the, mentioning that the legislature might have a role in 
making clear the laws so that that the DEQ can follow those laws and and make its permitting uh, based on those. Uh, so clearly, we've got some work to do in the conservation movement. Any other course of action that we can do in your mind uh, for anybody who might be worried about the quality of, of life that comes with the Smith River and uh, the clean air and clean water that we rely on? Yeah, you could call your Republican legislator, and, and uh, most of you who are listening um, probably come from a place where you have a Republican legislator because we have a majority Republican legislators. And you can ask them the following question. Just be nice. Um, ask them if they support Montana's clean water. Of course, they'll say. Um, ask them if they believe that uh, the public has a right to, to uh, clean places for hunting, for camping, for fishing. Of course they do. And then, of course, your follow-up question would be, um, how is it that you're in the Montana Republican Party? Because at least my experience, I, I didn't know much about politics before I was governor of Montana, but in my experience, very few Republicans um, are willing to vote in favor of clean water and clean air and clean places for hunting, camping, and fishing and protecting public lands. Now, they may, may believe that personally, uh, but, you know, in a deep, dark room in some tavern in Helena on lobbyist money, uh, they'll be informed how they should vote. And that's the way it works in Helena. Sorry, Helena. I'm just telling the truth. Uh, chat a little bit about Power Up, the book uh, that you wrote several years ago regarding the future of energy in America. Fascinating book. Want to start by asking, where's the best way to, to buy the book that does the most good for everybody? What's, what's the easiest way to get a hold of it? Just go to Amazon. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amazon, you can get everything. I would uh, I highly recommend it. Fascinating history and, again, ideas. And, Governor, I'd love for you to introduce us to why you sat down to write this book. Clearly, it was not an overnight uh, project, but um, what prompted you to do it and what did you learn? I've thought about energy my entire life. Imagine this. I grew up on the prairie of Montana, and uh, we had rural electrification for the most part. But some parts of the farm, we still had windmills that uh, pumped water uh, for our cattle. Um, and my father explained to me that uh, we didn't actually get electricity until 1948 when the REA brought that electricity. And one time in a conversation with my dad, and uh, remember, he's a German guy. So uh, when you ask him a question, he thinks a long time before he says anything. Um, I'm also uh, a lot of Irish, and so that's why I can talk about things before I think about them for a long time. But anyway, my dad thought about it and he said, well, what was the biggest change in my life when that when those wires came? He said, well, I suppose it was that we could we could weld. We could weld on the farm at a little hotter temperature than we could before. Because you see, uh, they had had electricity on that farm and so had rural Montana uh, all the way back to the 20s. In fact, uh, uh, they had all the electricity they needed. The wind blows in Montana and they had batteries in their basement. Uh, the limiting factor wasn't the ability to capture energy, as he explained. The problem was those dang batteries. They put the batteries in the basement and they'd last about three years and they were kind of expensive. Uh, if they ever got too cold, they'd freeze. And uh, sometimes they'd even blow up. So they were a big pain in the ass. But he said, uh, in terms of uh, lifestyle, gosh, wind energy was just as good as the RE. So it, it's, it's gotten me to thinking, did we make progress or not? You know, the Jacobs brothers from Circle were the largest providers of wind chargers in America. Circle, Montana. They were selling wind chargers from Minnesota to Texas and had a great business. Well, the REA came and, you know, it's a wonderful thing these days. But uh, imagine 
um, if instead of FDR, who did so many wonderful things, he, he put a lot of rural America to work with a lot of infrastructure projects. And some some of those were great and some of them were not as great. Some of them maybe even had some environmental damages. But the, the point is, he put America to work and he he had a notion. He had a notion that places that had electricity, the cities of America, he said, we cannot we cannot have uh, centers of prosperity and areas of poverty. And he equated that to places that didn't have electrical wires. And so the, the utility companies, of which you should always be suspicious of, and we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, they, they're all about profit. And why in the heck? Would they want to drag a wire some 20 miles some to, to some little town in Montana? Sure, they'll put it in Great Falls, and they'll put it in Billings, and they'll put it in Missoula. Uh, but those little towns in between, if that wire that they were building, the shortest distance between two points, if it didn't run right by you, you weren't getting electricity. And so his idea was we, we cannot have these areas of poverty. And so he created the REA and brought that electricity. But imagine had FDR looked at it a little bit differently. Had he had a talk with some of these farmers in Montana and Nebraska and North Dakota, and he would have thought for a moment, he said, well, gosh, you know, if we were to invest in battery technology, because they all say they have enough wind, if we invested in battery technology, if we if we could do a moonshot, if we could do like Kennedy said, when we're going to the moon, we're, you don't know how you're going to get there, but you just challenge the entire world to get behind this effort. Had we done that in the 40s? Imagine Imagine where we would be today. Electric cars, no problem getting 800 miles on a charge. Uh, wind and solar would be the predominant uh, producers of electricity worldwide. Now we're getting there. It's just taken an extra 80 years to get there. So um, I've had an excitement about energy uh, my entire life. My, my, my parents, who both had eighth grade educations, they, they, were, they were great farmers and ranchers, great business people. But they installed solar panels on their barn, get this, 40 years ago, so that they could do embryo transplanting in their barn and raise the temperature in the winter uh, warm enough so the vet could work in collecting those fertilized eggs from those cows and putting them in other cows so that a single cow could have 12 or 15 calves a year. Imagine, and they didn't do that because they were environmentalists. They did that because, well, you, gosh, an old barn? You're going to, what are you going to put some kind of a boiler in there and burn it down? Or you, even an electric might cause, cause a fire. So they spent a little more money and they bought solar panels. But the price of solar panels, <laughs> they are so inexpensive today. Um, I, uh, I have on, on my ranch, I've got a cabin that is 100% off-grid solar panels. It's a DC electric system and uh, I've got everything that I need there. I have a home on Georgetown Lake and I also have solar panels there now in that particular case, I have Northwestern Energy as a supplier of electricity, uh, but I actually produce on most years more electricity than I consume. And so as I produce electricity, it feeds into the Northwestern Energy system and they keep track of that. And any electricity that I need at night or when the sun isn't shining, they keep track of that. And at the end of the year, we add up who owes who what. And uh, if, um, if I've produced more than I've consumed, they just keep the difference. Um, if I use more than I produced, then they charge me. And in the meantime, they charge me $4.15 per month uh, for the privilege, which is fair. Um, but of course, Northwestern Energy, like utilities all over America, 
they're trying to take that uh, production away from people who have uh, homes and farms and ranches because they want to have their own big plants. Now, if you got a great big plant and it costs a billion dollars and you got $2 billion worth of transmission systems that go all over Montana or wherever it is that you've been given that monopoly, then you get to add all that up and say, well, now we're a $3 billion company. And uh, the way we created these monopolies is we guaranteed them a profit. So if you're a $3 billion company, then you have the right to making $300 million a year. And so you go before the Public Service Commission and you say, yeah, we got to go build us something big again. And uh, Public Service Commission says, well, excuse me, why do you need to? Do oh, because in the future, we're going to need a lot of electricity. Um, well, every once in a while, there'll be a, a member of the Public Service Commission that raises their hand. Now, we don't have that in Montana. Everybody on the Public Service Commission currently um, is, uh, you know, sort of uh, full-time employee of Northwestern Energy because they always say yes. So they agree, okay, uh, you go ahead and build that big plant or some more transmission line. But if we actually had somebody on the Public Service Commission that knew something about energy and were supportive of the consumers, not the producers, they would raise their hand and they would say, actually, um, I noticed in the last legislature that you're trying to change the rules so that you can charge more than $4.15 when somebody's on net metering with their own solar panels. So you really don't need anybody to be producing more energy, do you? Because you're making it more difficult for people to invest their own money to produce more energy. No, no, you know, Northwestern Energy would say, no, no, we're completely supportive of that. We just need to be fair to all of those people that don't have energy right now. And uh, that's why we need to build this big plant and these tr new transmission lines. Well, if that same public service commissioner that we don't have were to raise their hand and say, what if you build the transmission and if you build more uh, generation, then we, the users, have to pay more money. But if we can get Tom and Mary Smith to put solar panels on and produce a portion, and the excess that they're producing actually just goes to their neighbor across the street or down the road, then you don't have to pay more for transmission and new generation, and we don't have to raise rates on everybody else. How come we can't think about that? Now, that'd be great if we had a public service commissioner like that, but unfortunately today... We don't. We don't until uh, we do our part in November to change that, of course. Thank you, Governor. Uh, Governor Bullock's Climate Solutions Council, given what you just said, um, said that we should set a goal for carbon neutral by, by 2035. Given all of that, what will it take to get there? Do you think it's possible? Well, there's, there's several things that we need to do. And uh, unfortunately, you're not going to like to hear this, uh, Montana and America. You're not going to like to hear this. Uh, the rest of the world is ahead of us on this. For example, part of the reason um, Northwestern Energy will tell us that we need to invest more in these coal plants and this big central generation system that they like to build with more transmission is they say, you know, we have to build for peak demand. We, we don't want to be that California that had blackouts. You know, uh, there's some ports, parts of the day that we use more electricity than other parts of the day. And we have to build this system for the very highest demand on the very highest hour at the very highest day of the year. How many times have we heard that, right? Everybody talks about that. So um, all over the world and in some states around America, they have time of use metering, which says, hmm, I can be smarter about the use of my electricity. I wonder, um, you know, some of those appliances that I have that automatically turn on in the day, in the middle of the day when people are in school and all the factories are running and we get to peak demand, I don't know why I couldn't run those at night. 
Or somebody says, hey, I got an idea. If I owned an electric car and um, I'm mostly not driving it, you know how we are. We drive it here and there and once in a while. But uh, when it's not driving, it's plugged into the electric grid. And when the price of electricity is low because it's time of use, um, well, you would charge up that battery. And uh, then maybe another time when the price of electricity is high and you're at home, you use that battery. So the battery actually is a solution to all of this. But the things that will push that are time of use metering, um, the renewable portfolio standard uh, that we passed uh, 10 years ago is very important, but it's only 15%. And listen, we can get a lot further than that in Montana. We have great solar resources in Montana, great wind resources in Montana. Um, and so to move to a carbon neutral state, to a carbon neutral world, We've got to develop and continue to develop and invest in battery technology because things like wind and solar, we can produce more energy on this planet than we can consume. But we don't economically currently have the battery technology that can store it from the time that it's produced in the middle of the day or from when it's blowing to when it's not to be able to soften that load. So things like uh, the time of use metering, that'll help soften the load. Uh, we, we've absolutely got to force our utilities to get in this game. I mean, this business of them are always saying we need more generation and more transmission, and we don't want the consumer producing their own, and we don't even want time of use metering. That's a pain in the ass. That's got to stop. They're supposed to work for us. We created a monopoly. Now, when you create a monopoly as I described in my book, it's, it's the Stalinist model of business. What do I mean? Well, when Stalin was running Russia, he had a great plan. His plan was this. You pick your friends and give them a monopoly. So one of his friends got to make trucks. Another one got to make cars. Another one got to make silverware. Another one got to make plates. Another one got to cut wood. And he gave them monopolies. Well, what happened after 40 years of Stalin? They look back and they go, oh, my God, Russia was behind the rest of the world by 40 years because there was no competition. There was nobody at the end of the block that thought an idea, can we do it this way, and started doing it more efficiently. No, because it was a monopoly. So our utility industry in America, they're all monopolies. We carved them out. We said, oh, it doesn't make any sense to have three electric companies all running their wires down Main Street. Uh, what we've got to do is we have to carve up America and we'll, we'll create these zones where there will only be one electric company and they'll deliver the electricity. But since we're going to give them this monopoly, uh, they have to follow our rules. Well, that sounds pretty good. If, uh, if you had uh, a system where people had input, but just like in Stalinist Russia, these public service commissions, uh, they've got it figured out. They, they can either, you know, ask the questions in the room of the utility um, and get beat in the next election because that utility will pour money into whoever their opponent is, or they can roll over like fat dogs and get scratched by the uh, utility. So you don't have to please the customer if you are a utility. <laughs> you just need to please the politicians. And the politicians can explain it to the folks back home on their own. Well, that uh, leads us to the next thing we'd love to chat with you about, and that is Montana's political landscape, which is, as always, fascinating uh, and 
definitely a big moment for us this year. Uh, first on June 2nd, our primary, and then again in November for the general election. Uh, Governor, what is your take on our political landscape today? I know that's a, a pretty broad question, but a um, lot on the plate. What do you think is the most important uh, race and, and thing for people to be aware of? Well, I think the governor's race is probably the most important. And, you know, everybody who's in a race, it's always very important. And and they they want they want to raise theirs to the highest level. But, um, you know, for the last 16 years, for the most part, uh, the governors, both both Bullock and myself, were in a situation where we had a legislature that was dominated by Republicans. They had enough votes that they could send the craziest bills in the whole world. And they didn't hesitate doing that to the governor's desk. And uh, fortunately, we had governors that would veto those bills. And uh, this, we protected the, the people of Montana from some of these outrageous ideas. Um, if a Republican governor should get elected, and we still have this same bunch of legislators who have been sending this wacky stuff to Democratic governors to be vetoed, um, then they'll be signed into law. And things uh, are going to change substantially. Protection of clean places for hunting, camping, and fishing, it'll go by the wayside. Not only because they don't support uh, clean water and clean air initiatives that Democrats have supported over the course of the last uh, 20 years, um, they actually don't even support access to public lands. Um, at least one of the Republican candidates, Gianforte, he, uh, he had the audacity, while I was governor, of suing the state of Montana, uh, attempting to tell us that we didn't have the right to have a trail on our land that was adjacent to his land so that people could access the river that ran by his land. Now, we, weren't, we were talking about trespassing on his land. He was talking about us Montanans not using our own land as a trail to get to the river. And as you know, in Montana, unlike a lot of Western states, that river belongs to all of us. From high water to high water, we own it, baby. And we can float, we can fish, we can recreate. And this guy, this guy Gianforte, he's running for governor. It looks like he's probably going to be the Republican nominee. So uh, our public education system, we, uh, we actually have a really good public education system in Montana. Uh, and I, I've always been fascinated by some of these Republican legislators who, who live in rural areas, frankly. Um, you know, if you live near Circle or even Lewistown or, or Haver, uh, Malta, uh, Polson, uh, if you live in a place that's got, you know, a population of less than a few thousand people, how are you going to finance both a private and a public school? You barely have enough students for one public school. I grew up in Geyser. Geyser still has a public high school. But in order to field, get this, in order to field a six-man football team, they joined forces with Stanford, 18 miles away, and Denton, another 20 miles away, so that we can field a team. So how are those communities going to have a second private school funded by taxpayer dollars? We, we, we've got to invest in our public education system so that we have a, a system that every child in Montana, every single one of the children in Montana, have an equal opportunity to make it to the top. That's when public education systems are working. And 
I, I spend part of my year in Arizona when the snow's deep. And I can tell you here, they, they've created a system where anybody who would like to start any kind of a new two-bit idea cult or whatever you want to call it, they get public funds to start a school. Now, there's no accountability as to whether they're teaching anything or whether students are even showing up. Some of them are very good schools, no question about it, and many of them are not. But meanwhile, the money has come out of the public system and has been kicked into a private system. Now, they have some larger populations in places like Phoenix and Tucson, so maybe people can afford to have a choice. But uh, that doesn't look anything like Montana, in particular, the rural areas of Montana that are electing Republican legislators and somehow are thinking that uh, there's going to be a second school um, formed in, in Denton or Malta if they just move some public money to a private source. Governor Brian Schweitzer, two-term governor of Montana and author of Power Up, How the Coming Revolution Will Empower You, Free Us from All Oil Wars, and Make You a Buck or Two. You can find it on Amazon. Governor, really appreciate your time with us. Thank you. We do want to note that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Montana Conservation Voters, its staff, or its board of directors. And we will hear more from Governor Schweitzer very soon. Before we go, Whitney, let's plug some social media. Thanks, Murph. Uh, remember, the best way to stay informed about what we are up to is following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at MTVoters. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Montana Conservation Voters, where you can listen to this podcast and receive more updates. Thank you, Whitney. And as always, uh, head over to mcv at mtvoters.org if you have any tips or feedback for us. Before we go, we'll leave you with one clip uh, from some of the kids who have been sending us videos for Earth Day. Again, our project is to collect videos from as many folks as we can and splice them together into one clip that we will send to our elected leaders. We are passing along messages from the young people of Montana so that their leaders can hear from them. Let's hear from one now. Hi, I'm Helena, I'm from Billings, Montana, and I think climate change is important because it affects what kind of recreational activities future generations will be able to experience. And we're asking folks to send those submissions to mcv at mtvoters.org by Monday, April 20th. And that's our show. Thank you for joining us, and we will be back next week.